0: Part Two, Chapter Two, A Farewell, Love, A Novel by Matilde Serrao. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Broda. Two. Cesare Diaz came home one day, towards six o'clock, in great good humor. At dinner he found everything excellent, though it was his habit to find everything bad. He ate with a hearty appetite, told countless amusing stories, of the sort that he reserved for his agreeable moments. He joked with Laura and with Anna. He even complimented his wife upon her dress, a new one that she had today put on for the first time. He succeeded in communicating his gaiety to the two women. Anna looked at him with meek and tender eyes, and as often as he smiled, She smiled, too. Laura, it is true, spoke little, but in her face shone that expression of vivacity, of animation, which had characterized it for some time past. She agreed with everything Chesiree said, bowing her head. After dinner, they all passed into Anna's drawing room. It was her evening at home, and noticing that there were flowers in all the vases, It was in June, just a year after their talk at Sorrento, and seeing the silver samovar on the table, Cesare asked, Are you expecting people tonight, Anna? A few. Perhaps no one will come. Ah, that's why you've got yourself up so smartly. Did you fancy it was for you that she put on her new frock, Cesare? Laura asked jestingly. I was presumptuous enough to do so, and all presumptions are delusions. I'll bet that Luigi Caracciolo is coming, the ever-faithful one. I'm sure I don't know, said Anna indifferently. Oh, you hypocrite, Anna, laughed Laura. Hypocrite, hypocrite, repeated Cesare, also laughing. Come, I'll warrant that obstinate fidelity of Caracciolo has at least made an impression. Admirable." He's been in love with you for a hundred years. Oh, Cesare, don't joke about such subjects, Anna begged in pain. You see, Laura, she is troubled. She's troubled, it's true, affirmed Laura. You're both of you heartless, Anna murmured. Cesare opened his cigarette case and playfully offered a cigarette to each of the ladies. I don't smoke, said Laura. Why don't you learn to? Smoke is bad for the teeth. And she showed her own, shining like those of Beatrice in the tale of Edgar Poe. You're right, fair Minerva. Will you smoke, Anna? I don't smoke either, she said with a soft smile. You ought to learn. It would be becoming to you. You're dark. You have the Spanish type, and the papalito would complete your charm. I will learn, Cesare, she assented. And what's more, smoke calms the nerves. You can't imagine the soothing effect it has. Nothing is better to relieve our little sorrows. Give me a cigarette, then, she said at once. Ah, you have little sorrows? Who knows, she sighed, putting aside her cigarette. "'You have no little sorrows, Laura?' asked Cheseday. "'Neither little ones nor big ones.' "'Who can boast of having never wept?' said Anna with a melancholy accent. "'If we become sentimental, I shall take myself off,' said Cheseday. "'No, no, don't go away,' Anna prayed him. "'I would remind you that we've got to pass our whole life together.' said he, ironically, knocking the ash off his cigarette. All our lifetime, and more beyond it, said Anna pensively. And more beyond. It's a grave affair. I will think of it while I am dressing this evening. Where are you going? To take a walk, he answered, rising. Why don't you stay here? She ventured to ask. I can't. I'm obliged to go out. Come home early, won't you? Early? Yes. He consented after a short hesitation. I'll wait for you, Cesare. Yes, yes. Good night. He went off. Laura, according to her recent habit, had listened to this dialogue with her eyes half-closed and biting her lips. She said Nothing. Whenever her sister and her brother-in-law exchanged a few affectionate words, and indeed, Chesiree did no more than respond to the affection of Anna, she assumed the countenance of a statue, which neither feels nor hears nor sees, or else she got up and left the room noiselessly. Often Anna surprised on Laura's face a cynical smile that appeared the antithesis of its extreme purity the irony of an icy virgin who is aware of the falsity and hollowness of love. This evening, when Cesare had left them, the sisters remained together for a few minutes, but apparently both their minds were absorbed in deep thought. At any rate, they could not keep up a conversation. Anna, in her lilac-colored frock, lay in an easy chair, leaning her head on her hands, over which her black hair seemed like a warrior's helmet. Laura was pulling and playing with the fringe of her white dress. "'I'm going. Good night,' she said suddenly. "'And why do you go, Laura?' asked Anna, issuing from her reverie. "'There's no use staying. People will be arriving. "'But stay for that very reason. "'You will help me to endure their visits.' Oh, that's a task above my strength, said the blonde and beautiful Minerva. Then, anyhow, it's you they come to see, my dear. You'll be married some day yourself, said Anna, laughing. She was still in a pleasant mood, a reflection of Cesare's gaiety. And then he had promised to come home early. Who knows? Good night. And Laura rose to go away. But what are you going to do? Read a little, then sleep. What are you reading? Le Mot de la Enigma by Madame Pauline Craven. A mystical romance? Do you want to become a nun? Who knows? Good night. Anna herself took up a book after Laura's departure. It was Adolphe by Benjamin Constant. She had found it one day on her husband's writing desk. In its cool yet ardent pages, one feels the charm of a truthful story surging up from the heart in a single, vibrant cry of pain. Anna had read it two or three times. Now she began it again absent mindedly. But she did not read long. A few callers came the Marchese Scribilia, her relative, accompanied by a Gaetano Athlon who always liked to go about with old ladies, Commander Gabriel Mari, a man of seventy, and then the Prince of Gioosa, a handsome, witty, and intelligent Calabrian. The conversation, of course, was a mixture of frivolity and seriousness, as conversations are apt to be in a small gathering like the present where nobody cares to appear too much in earnest and everybody tries to speak in paradoxes. The prince Digiosa was the last to leave. It was then past eleven. No one else will come, she thought. But she was mistaken acquaintances passing in the street and seeing her windows alight came up to pay their respects. When the last of these had gone, it is late, no one else will come, she thought again. But again she was mistaken. The servant announced Luigi Caracciolo and the handsome young fellow entered with that English correctness of bearing which somewhat tempered the vivacity of his blonde youthfulness. He was in evening dress and wore a spray of lilies of the valley in his buttonhole. Anna gave him her hand amicably. Her rings glittered in the lamplight. Starry hand, he said, bowing and pressing it softly. Where do you come from? She asked with that polite curiosity which implies no real interest. From the opera, he said, seating himself beside her. What were they giving? The Huguenots, always the same. It is always beautiful. Do you remember? He asked with a tender, caressing voice. They were singing the Huguenots on the evening when I was first introduced to you. Yes, I remember that evening, she said with sudden melancholy. How horribly I displeased you that night, didn't I? The only thing to approach it was the tremendously delightful impression you made on me. What nonsense, she protested kindly. And your first impression of me has never changed. Confess it, he said. Even if that were true, it wouldn't make you very unhappy. What can you know about that? You beautiful women, admired and loved, what do you know? "'You're right. Indeed, we know nothing.' "'But he saw that her mind was away in a land of dreams, far from him. "'He felt all at once the distance that divided them. "'When you come back from your travels, let me know that I may welcome you,' "'he said with his smooth, caressing voice. "'What travels? Ah, if I knew!' If I knew where your thoughts are wandering while I talk to you, I could go with you. I could follow you in your fantasies. Instead, I speak, and you don't listen to me. I say serious things to you in a tone, and you understand neither the seriousness nor the joke. You leave me here alone, whilst you roam who knows where. And I a humble mortal, without visions, without imagination, I can only wait for you to return, my dear lady. If indeed there was a certain poetic quality in what he said, there was a deeper poetry still in the tenderness and sweetness of his voice. He sat in front of her, gazing into her face, as if he could not tear himself from that contemplation. She sometimes lowered her eyes, Sometimes turned them away, sometimes fixed them upon a page of Adolf, which she had kept in her hands. If his gaze embarrassed her, however, his soft voice seemed to calm her nerves. She listened to it, scarcely understanding his words as one listens to a vague, pleasant music. "'Doesn't it bore you to wait?' she asked. "'I am never bored here.' when I have this lovely sight before my eyes. What sight? she inquired ingenuously. Your person, my dear lady. But you can't always be looking at me, she said laughing, trying to turn the conversation to a jest. That's a fatal misfortune, as they say in novels. I should like to pass my whole life near to you, Instead, I'm obliged to pass it among a lot of people who are utterly indifferent to me. A great misfortune. It's not your fault, she said with a faint smile. It certainly isn't, but that doesn't console me. Shall we try it, passing our lives together? One can overcome misfortunes our whole lives. That will mean many years. But I am married she said, feeling that the talk was becoming dangerous. "'Oh, that's nothing!' he cried empathetically. "Caracciolo, I believe you've found the means to see me no more. What do you want from me?' "'Nothing, dear lady. Nothing,' he answered with genuine grief in his face and voice. "'Then you ought not to risk destroying one of your friendships,' What would Cesare have said if he had heard you for the last half hour? Oh, nothing. He couldn't have heard me, you know, because he's never here. Sometimes he is, she said with sudden emotion. Never, never. Don't tell pious fibs. He's always here. In your heart, I know it. It's an agreeable home for him the more so because he can find others of the same sort wherever he goes. "'What are you saying?' "'One of my usual vulgarities. "'I'm speaking ill of your husband.' "'Then be quiet.' But to soften the severity of this command, she offered him a box of cigarettes. "'Thanks for your charity,' he said, and he began to smoke looking at one of her slippers of lilac satin embroidered with silver, which escaped from beneath her train. She sat with her elbow on the table, thinking. It was midnight. In a few minutes Caracciolo would be gone, and Cesare couldn't delay much longer about coming home. Luigi Caracciolo seemed to divine her thoughts. After this cigarette, I will leave you, I'm afraid I've given you no great idea of my wit. I detest witty men. Small harm. I hope you believe, though, that I have a heart. I believe it. All the better. One day or another, you will remember what I have said to you this evening and understand it. Perhaps, she said vaguely, you had a very happy inspiration to dress in lilac. It's such a tender color. That's the tint one sees in the sunsets at Venice. Have you ever been at Venice? Never. That's a pity. It's a place full of soft tears. One can make a provision of them there to last a lifetime. Trifling love becomes deep at Venice, and deep love becomes indestructible. Good night. Good night. She gave him her hand like a white flower issuing from the satin of her sleeve. He touched it lightly with his lips and went away. Not for a moment during her conversation with Luigi Caracciolo had her husband been absent from Anna's mind. And all that the young man said, which constantly implied if it did not directly mention love, had but intensified her one eternal thought. It was now half-past twelve. She rose and rang the bell, and her maid appeared. They left the drawing-room and went into Anna's bedroom, which was lighted by a big lamp with a shade of pink silk. Her maid helped her to undress, thinking that she was going to bed, But presently, Anna asked for her tea gown of cream-colored crepe and put it on as if she meant to sit up. She had loosened her hair, and it fell down her back in a single rich black tress. The maid asked if she might go to bed, and Anna said, Yes. Cesare had given orders that no servant should ever sit up for him. He had a curiously wrought little key, a master key, which he wore on his watch chain and which opened every door in his house. Thus, he could come in at any hour of the night he liked without being seen or heard. The maid went softly away, closing the door behind her. Anna sat down in an easy chair beside her bed. She still had the volume of a Dolph in her hand. She sat still there, while she heard the servant moving about the apartment, shutting the windows. Then all was silent. Anna got up and opened the doors between her room and her husband's so she would be able to hear him when he returned. He could not delay much longer. He had promised to come home early. He knew that she would wait for him. And, as she had been doing through the whole evening, But with greater intensity than ever, she longed for the presence of her loved one. Was not everything empty and colorless when he was away? And this evening, he had been so merry and so kind. His promise resounded in her soul like a solemn vow. She thrilled with tremulous emotion. The softness of the spring night entered into her and exhilarated her. She lay back in her easy chair with closed eyes and dreamed of his coming. She felt an immense need of him to have him there beside her to hold his hands in hers, to lean her head upon his shoulder in sweet, deep peace, listening to the beating of his heart supported by his arms while his breath fell upon her hair, her eyelids, her lips. A dream of love vivid and languid, full of delicate ardor and melancholy desire. She surprised herself murmuring his name. Cesare, Cesare, she said, trembling with love at the sound of her own voice. Suddenly, it seemed to her that she heard a noise in her husband's room. Then he had come. Swiftly, like a flying shadow, she crossed the passage and looked in only silence and darkness. She had been mistaken. She leaned on the frame of the door and remained thus for a long moment. Slowly she returned to her room, thinking that early must mean for a man of late habits like Cheseday, two o'clock in the morning. That was it. He would arrive at two. She took up Adolf, thinking to divert herself with reading, and thus to moderate her impatience. She opened the book towards the middle, where the passionate struggle between Eleanor and Adolphe is shown in all its sorrowful intensity. And from the dry, precise words, the hard, effective style, the brief and austere narrative, was like the cry of a soul destroyed by skepticism. Anna derived the impression, a fright. Ah, in her sincere youthful faith, what a horror she had of that modern malady which corrupts the mind, depraves the conscience, and kills whatever is most noble in the soul. What could she know, poor, simple, ignorant woman, whose only belief, whose only law, whose only hope was love? What could she know of the spiritual diseases of those who have seen too much, who have loved too much, who have squandered the purest treasures of their feelings? What could she know of the desolating torture of those souls who can no longer believe in anything, not even in themselves, and who have lost their last ideal? She could know nothing, and yet a terror assailed her. Perhaps Cesare, her husband, was like Adolf, who could never more be happy, who could never more give happiness to others. She shuddered and threw the book aside in great distress. She got up mechanically and took from the table a rosary of sandalwood, which a missionary friar had brought from Jerusalem. She had never been regular in her devotions, her imagination was too fervid but religious feelings seemed sometimes to sweep in upon her in great waves of divine love. A child of the South, she only prayed when moved by some strong pain for which she could find no earthly relief. She forgot to pray when she was happy. Now she pressed the rosary to her lips and began to repeat the long and poetical litany which Domenico di Guzman has dedicated to the Virgin. Ingenuously enough, she thought that in this way the time would pass more rapidly, two o'clock would strike, and Cesare would arrive. But she endeavored in vain to fix her mind upon her origins. It flew away before her, to her meeting with her beloved, and though her lips pronounced the words of the Ave and the Potter, their sense escaped her. Once or twice she paused for a few minutes and then went on, confused, beseeching heaven's pardon for her slight attention. When her rosary was finished, it was two, precisely. Now Cesare would come. She could not control her nervousness. She took her lamp and went into her husband's room. She placed the lamp on the writing desk and seated herself in one of the leather armchairs. She felt easier there. The austerity of the big chamber, with its dark furniture, told her that her husband's soul was above the sterile and frivolous pleasures in which he had already lost the best part of the night. The air still smelt of cigarette smoke. Here and there a point of metal gleamed in the lamplight. On a table lay a pair of gloves. They had been worn that day, and they retained the form of his hands. She kissed them. "'and put them into the bosom of her gown. "'But where was Cesare? "'She began to pace backwards and forwards, "'the train of her dress following her like a white wave. "'Why did he not come home? "'It was very, very late. "'There were no balls on for that night. "'No social function could detain him till this hour. "'Where was Cesare? "'Ah, Cesare, 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 her dear love, where was he? She passed her hands over her burning forehead. All at once, looking out into the night, she noticed in the distance the windows of Cesare's club brilliantly lighted. Then a sudden peace came to her. He would be there, playing, talking, enjoying the company of his friends, forgetful of the time, It was an old habit of his, and old habits are so hard to break. She remained at the window of his room, with her eyes fixed upon the windows of his club. The light that shone from them was the pole star of her heart. She opened the window and went out upon the balcony. Presently, two men issued from the clubhouse, stood for a moment chatting together at the entrance, and then moved off towards the Kiaia. Ah, she thought, the company at the club was beginning to break up. At last Cesare would come. And at the end of ten minutes, four men came out together. These also chatted together for a minute, then separated, two going towards the Riviera, two entering the Via Vittoria. By and by, one man came out alone and advanced directly towards Dias's house. This surely would be he. The man was looking up towards the balcony. Good night, Signora Anna, said the voice of Luigi Caracciolo. Good night, she murmured, faint with disappointment. Caracciolo had stopped and was leaning on the railing, gazing up at her. Anna drew back out of sight. Good night, Anna, he repeated, very softly. She did not answer. Caracciolo went off slowly, slowly, stopping now and then to look back. She turned her eyes again upon the windows of the club, but they were quite dark. The lights had been extinguished. So Caracciolo had been the last to leave, and Cesare was not there. She felt terribly cold all at once. Her teeth chattered. She went back into the room, shivering, and had scarcely strength enough to shut the window. She fell upon a chair, exhausted. The clock struck. It was half past three. And now a hideous suspicion began to torture her. There were no balls tonight, no receptions, no functions. The club was shut up. The cafes were shut up. All talking, eating, drinking, gambling were over for the night. The life of the night was spent. Everybody had gone home to bed. Then where was Cesare? Cesare, her husband, was with a woman. And jealousy began to gnaw her heart. With a woman, that was certain. The truth burned her soul he would be nowhere else than with a woman. The truth rang in her heart like a trumpet blast. Mechanically, she put her fingers to her ears to shut out the words, with a woman, with a woman. But what woman? She knew nothing of her husband's secrets, nothing of his past or present loves. She was a mere stranger whom he tolerated. Not a friend not a confidant. She was a troublesome bond upon him, an obstacle to his pleasures, an interference with his habits. No doubt there were older bonds, stronger ties, that kept him from her, or it might be the mere force of a passing fancy. But for what woman? For what woman? In vain she tried to give the woman a name, a living form. Oh, certainly not a lady, not a woman of honorable rank and reputation, not the Contessa de la Magna. Who, then? Who, then? How much time passed while she sat there in a convolution of tears and sobs, prey to all the anguish of jealousy. The day broke. A greenish, livid light entered the room. The handle of the door turned. Cesare came in. He was very pale, with dull, weary eyes. He had a cigarette in his mouth. His lips were blue. The collar of his overcoat was turned up. His hands were in his pockets. He looked at his wife, indifferently, coldly, as if he did not recognize her. She rose. Her face was ashen. Her capacity for feeling was exhausted. What are you doing here? He asked. He threw away his cigarette and took off his hat. How old and used up he looked. With his hair in disorder, his cheeks sunken from lack of sleep. I was waiting for you, she said. All night? All night. You have great patience. He opened the door. Goodbye, Anna. Goodbye, Cesare and she returned to her own room end of part 2 chapter 2